Hey everyone, Ryan here. Just a quick reminder before we start the show that we have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash leftanchor. Uh, if you want to support the show and get access to extra episodes, um, you can sign up there. If not, that's also fine. But uh, thanks for listening in any case. Let's get started. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. Um, missing Alexi today. He is uh, off sick. But I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast distinguished professor of, of history, Eric Rauschway uh, of the of UC Davis, uh, who is the author of a number of books, including Winter War, which I have just finished and um, we're going to be talking about later, but definitely worth picking up. Um, yeah, welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you very much. Happy to talk to you. Great. Um, I thought a good place to start would be with this quote from <clears throat> um, President Obama back in um, about, I don't know, it was 2010, I think. And he said, quote, we didn't actually, I think, do what Franklin Delano Roosevelt did, which was basically wait for six months until the thing had gotten so bad that it became an easier sell politically because we thought that was irresponsible. We had to act quickly, end quote. And so um, could you give us, uh, maybe we could start with the background of the presidential transition into um, between 1932 and 1933, which back in those days was six months before they changed the, the Constitution, I think, so that uh, inaugura inaugurations used to happen in March, now they happen in January. Um, but in that period, there was a just a, a bitter political battle between the outgoing President Hoover and incoming President-elect Roosevelt. And so can you give us some of the so, like the sort of basic story of what was going on there? Sure. Yeah, you're right. That uh, what uh, then President Obama was talking about was that uh, after getting elected, Roosevelt had to wait until March 4th, 1933. So not, not quite six months. Uh, I think uh, President Obama was a little off in that, as he was in some other details of that. Comment, but we'll get to that later. Right. Uh, you know, he had to wait until March fourth, nineteen thirty-three, to take office. So this is a very dicey period. This is the depth of the Great Depression. Yeah. Uh, unemployment, unemployment. You know, is it's we only have really retrospective estimates, and they're maybe not so accurate. But let's say it's close to twenty-five percent. So it's really catastrophic. And not only that, long-term unemployment is very high. Uh, you know, so there's a there's a there's a real sense that in this economic crisis that has been going on since 1929, that all of the institutions that matter have failed. And this is not only true in the United States, but around the world. You know, you've seen the rise of fascism uh, throughout uh, Western Europe, and most notably, as you're getting into 1932, 1933, of course, Nazism in Germany. People seem to be giving up on you know liberal democracy and market capitalism. And there's a real sense that that could happen in the United States. So when Roosevelt comes, uh, gets the Democratic nomination in 1932, runs for president that year, he runs on the idea of a New Deal, which is a package of a lot of different programs. But the most important idea is that the New Deal will show Americans that their government will work for them and shouldn't be overthrown. 
So he, he sort of says, we're going to do big public works. We're going to relieve the pressure on, uh, you know, farmers by, uh, by subsidizing the, the, the prices that they get for their goods. We're going to, you know, regulate uh, and, and look into the wrongdoing in the financial sector that got us into this mess. We're going to have more progressive forms of taxation. You know, there's a long, we're going to protect labor. There's a long list of things that he promises uh, in the campaign of 1932. And, you know, Hoover does uh, President Hoover does his best to say all of that sounds like communism to me? He says it's you know it has the odor coming off of it is the same as the fumes of the cauldron that boiled over in Moscow. So it's a very clear campaign where you know Hoover has on offer not doing the New Deal because it's communism, and Roosevelt is offering the New Deal, and Roosevelt wins in a landslide. And then, as you say, there's this long sort of period of bated breath to see what's going to happen, and. Um, it's an incredibly eventful period, both internationally and within the United States. And Hoover, who at that time, Time Magazine referred to as President Reject, of course, is still <laughs> sitting in the White House, having the powers of the presidency and unwilling to exercise them. Uh, so uh, there's, this, there's this long, very bitter period uh, some, of some months. And... Um, you know, first the uh, the uh, many of the allies from the First World War default on their debts to the United States. So Hoover tries to pull Roosevelt in to to sort of sign off on Hoover's method of dealing with that. Uh, you know, there's there are international difficulties when you know uh, Hitler comes to power. Um, Japan is 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 is, uh, is as is expelled from the League of Nations because of its uh, uh, you know its its invasion of, of Manchuria and the adoption of the puppet state of Manchukuo. Um, and, uh, but within the United States, the, the financial crisis that, you know, there had been waves of bank failures starting with, uh, the crash of 1929 and a new one had started just before the election, uh, in November and it got worse and worse and worse and worse until by the time, you know, you're getting into the month or six weeks or so before Roosevelt's coming into office, it's not clear that the American banking system is going to continue operating at all. So that's the specific thing that Obama's talking about. And he's drawing a comparison, of course, between the events of 32-33 and the events of 2008-2009, where there was a, you know, a, a, a major financial collapse, of course, through the course of 2008. And Obama, rather than, and who was a senator, so actually had a role in the federal government, unlike Franklin Roosevelt, uh, you know, worked with his party, Democratic Party, to support the outgoing Bush administration's uh, bank bailout bill, which became known as the Troubled Asset Relief Program. And in fact, uh, by many accounts, including uh, uh, Senator Obama's own, uh, played an instrumental role in getting reluctant House Democrats to support that bill. So that's what he's saying is that you know he worked with the Republicans to lessen the impact of financial collapse in a way that Roosevelt had not. Now, you may be wondering, why didn't Roosevelt do that? You know, I think in the quotation that you read, uh, uh, Obama said that, that he believed that Roosevelt's behavior was irresponsible. Um, the reason Roosevelt didn't work with the outgoing Hoover administration is that the outgoing Hoover administration really didn't offer to work with Franklin Roosevelt. You know, Hoover... Right told Roosevelt that the only reason there was a financial collapse going was because he had promised this crazy communist new deal. And therefore the only way to avert it was for Roosevelt to repudiate the platform on which he had just been elected. 
And Roosevelt, I think for very good reasons, refused to do that. See above under democracy is in peril around the world at this point. And Roosevelt uh, believed that, you know, he had been elected to do these things. They were the right things to do, and he was going to do them, and that would show people that their, uh, you know, democratic institutions worked. So that's maybe a longer sort of uh, unpacking of uh, Obama's short remark than you were looking for, but I think that, that gets us on the road. No, that's perfect. I think that's that's just exactly right. And, um, you know, as you write in, in Winter War, Right. Uh, af- I mean, even during the presidential transition, Hoover is setting himself up to be the sort of the voice of the anti-New Deal conservative, you know, sort of uh, uh, um, ideology that it's that it's bad, sort of sight unseen, predicts all this, do- you know, doom and gloom. It's going to become just like Soviet Russia. And so what he wants Roosevelt to do is repudiate the entire New Deal before he ever takes office and promise to just do what Hoover is doing, which is nothing, um, or almost nothing. Um, right. But then afterwards, Roosevelt, or maybe even at the time, I think, uh, Hoover pushes this line that he was trying to do something and Roosevelt wouldn't cooperate, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's sort of like an inverted narrative of what actually happened. And that became a sort of truism on the right and apparently even on the center left, because that's exactly, it seems to me, right, what uh, Obama is saying here, that Hoover was trying to do something and Roosevelt said no for political reasons so that he could do the New Deal. Right. I mean, uh, you know, again, Hoover wasn't offering anything to Roosevelt. He was telling Roosevelt the only way to stop the collapse was to repudiate the New Deal. So in fairness to the outgoing Bush administration in 2008, they were actually offering you know, something to Obama and the Democrats. They were offering a bank bailout package. It's not at all clear what form a Hoover bailout would have taken if Roosevelt had said, all right, I'll repudiate the New Deal so long as we can work together. Uh, you know, in terms of some kind of bank bailout package, there was never an outline of such, such a program. Right. Hoover, again, was just telling Roosevelt, you have to say that. And then, you know, magically, people's confidence in the economy will be restored. Right. That was his idea of cooperation. Um, the uh, why do we, you know, I think we, we have this idea that, uh, you know, that, that in times of crisis, uh, you know, great statesmen will come together. And we'd like to believe that our leaders are at least in times of crisis, more inclined to act like great statesmen than not. And Herbert Hoover certainly knew that people wanted to believe that about him. And, you know, he lived for about three decades after he finished being president. And he said it for solidly for three decades and people came to believe him. Um, you know, the thing is that Roosevelt knew that if he and also Roosevelt doesn't have any power. He's yeah. gov- governor of New York to the end of 1932, and then he's a private citizen until March 4th, from the end of 1932 till March 4th, 1933. So all he could do was say, I agree with the president, or I support the president, or as the president has, has asked me, I now forswear the New Deal, or whatever. He couldn't actually do anything. All the power to act lay with the president of the United States, who again was Herbert Hoover. So it's quite a different situation, really, than 2008, 2009 in that respect. You know, Obama really was in the Senate. Yeah. Now, you, you could make the argument that Obama made, you know, exactly the mistake that Roosevelt was trying to avoid. 
And Roosevelt's logic was that, you know, he didn't want to have responsibility without power. In other words, if he signed on even just sort of notionally to anything Hoover did, then he would own it once he became president. And he had no faith, I think with good reason, that Hoover would execute a policy in a way that would, you know, satisfy Franklin Roosevelt or the Democratic Party or the American people who had voted for them. Um, you know, and so he, he refused to say, to do anything because he was a private citizen. He said, you, you go on presidenting until you're done presidenting and then I'll start presidenting when it's my turn and I'll do my thing and you do yours. I will tell you, he told Hoover, the first thing I'm going to do is declare a bank holiday, close the banks. You know, Roosevelt's aides told Hoover's folks that the first thing Roosevelt was going to do is going to close the banks. He was going to then stop, uh, you know, exchanging gold for paper dollars to try to stop the run on America's gold reserves. And he was going to then try to devalue the dollar. So Hoover knew what Roosevelt would do. You know, it was open to him to preempt that strategy and do that himself. You know, he just he just wouldn't. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's, it, it's kind of baffling to be, to be like, he'd been president for four years and for three, three years, the economy had been falling in on itself largely because he refused to take any of the steps that would have alleviated the crisis instead insisting in the, you know, the, oh, confidence and, you know, Andrew Mellon saying we need to liquidate farmers, liquidate real estate and, and all that. And the, and his famous quote, um, and, and now, you know, in the last six months, it's like, oh, well, we're just about to turn the corner. If you, if the guy, you know, who's elected <laughs> will just promise to do the same thing we've been doing for three years has just made everything worse. I mean, it's kind of a fantastical notion. Right. Well, Hoover devoutly believed that, uh, you know, really there had been a recovery finally visible in the summer of 1932. And the only reason that destroyed that it, that the, what, things went south again was that Roosevelt had been elected, you know, which is weird. You have the majority of all the electorate, you know, picking this guy for president and then immediately saying, whoops, we thought that was a mistake. Uh, that doesn't, that doesn't really seem plausible to me, but that was certainly what, Ro what Hoover believed, you know, to be the case till his dying day. Of course, as you say, a lot of people have gone on to, to sort of buy Hoover's story, um, yeah. you know, which is, is probably not very good as history. Yeah, I mean, you know, just to just to drive the point home here, it was Hoover, not FDR, who was deliberately not cooperating with the, you know, the like the successor to to try to extract political concessions. You know, you could imagine a, a, a world where Hoover is like, I lost by whatever it was, 20 points. Like, my vision has clearly failed. The country's falling to pieces. I just give up. I'm going to just, you know, we have this bizarre, antiquated system where, where the new guy can't take power for, for, for forever. And we're just all sitting here on our hands. So you tell me what to do, FDR, and I'll just do it so that we can get a start on things. But he did not do that. He tried it with all his might to stymie, you know, any kind of response to the depression, right? And in the process, you know, arguably, I would say, sparked this this bank bailout, or sorry, this this run on the the banks, which which um, you know, wouldn't have happened if he had just followed the Roosevelt program, which did indeed solve it in in March, right, when he took office. Yeah, exactly. I think you've put your finger on the really kind of outrageous 
uh, quality of Hoover's spin on this story it is, you know, which is that Hoover held all the power. It was open to him to say, as you said, well, the people have chosen. They didn't choose me, but I still hold power until March. And in deference to the expressed will of the American electorate, I will assist Roosevelt in bringing about a proto-New Deal. He could have done that, right? The lame duck Congress met in 19th, December of 1932 and began debating a bill that would have become, that, that was basically the thing that became the farm program of the New Deal, the Agricultural Adjustment Act. And Hoover killed it by saying he would veto anything that came out of there. So the, the guy who is complaining that, that Roosevelt won't cooperate is specifically trying to prevent anything Rooseveltian from being done during these months where he's saying, you know, I, I, what I really want is, is to work with you. Um, it's very much Lucy and the football or whatever, you know, sort of metaphor you, you want. You know, I'll, I'll cooperate with you as long as you don't mind fly, falling flat on your back. <laughs> um, and, 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 of course, yes, you're right to point out that the moment Roosevelt takes office is the moment that recovery from the Depression begins. It's March 1933. Now, it's possible to say that, you know, correlation isn't causation, that that recovery would, would, have, was, would have come, you know, somehow magically. But it does seem wildly improbable, given, <laughs> as you say, the, the collapsing of the banks and Hoover's unwillingness to do anything about it. You know, maybe if, had Hoover been going into a second term, he would have done something. So that's 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 a hypothetical we don't have. But given the thing, the way things were, the fact that Roosevelt came into office with the, the um, most of the banks already closed, you know, because of fear and, and, and depletion and, you know, said, well, all right, we'll close the rest of them. We will stop redeeming paper dollars in gold. We are basically going to stop all of the movement of money in the United States economy. And we're going to do this. And we're going to have federal and state officials, you know, go over all of the books of all of the banks and say which ones are sound. And then we will allow them to reopen when we determine they're sound. And then you can have confidence in the banks. And if we reopen a bank, you should bring your money back and put it in the bank. If we do that, you should bring your gold back and accept paper money again. And lo and behold, this move works. Right. People have been hoarding money. They've been hoarding gold. Roosevelt closes the banks, you know, gradually they reopen them after about a week or so, and people bring their money back and they bring their gold back. You know, he has effectively restored faith in the system. Not only that, because he never allows paper dollars to be redeemed for gold again by Americans, right? He's taken the dollar off the gold standard. He's instant, you know, he's created what economists now sometimes call, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the idea of credible irresponsibility. He might inflate the currency, and in fact, he does. And so once people believe that the currency is going to be inflated, that means they believe that price is going to go up instead of going down. They have the incentive to start spending money that they have on hand. And so that's a spurred economic activity. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I we actually have previously on the podcast played uh played uh one of the fireside chats about the the banking you know I I would like to talk to the American people for a moment about banking and he explains how right. the whole thing's going to work and it's very 
it's 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 almost sort of innocent and it's and it's like trusting of the american people to understand a very you know fairly complicated subject but um you know that this this maybe raises an interesting question right because as you've as you uh mentioned previously Hoover thought that like, he hated the New Deal. He thought it was creeping communism. It's going to destroy the country, and that you know, like like grass would grow in the streets of America. Um, so maybe you can illuminate us uh, whether Hoover changed his views or not when that turned out to be not at all the case. No, uh, he didn't. <laughs> Short answer, <laughs> right? I mean, this is. Um... As you what you said about the grass growing in the streets, that comes from one of Hoover's campaign speeches when he's running for re-election in 32. He also says, you know, that it would crack the timbers of the Constitution. I mean, he's very clear. The New Deal would bring an apocalypse, not just an economic apocalypse, but a political one, right? It would destroy liberty. It would destroy the Constitution. It would lay waste to American. He's very clear on this point. This is This is not an election in which, you know, it's... It's difficult to see the difference between the two candidates. This is like very clear that Roosevelt wants the New Deal and Hoover thinks that would be the end of America. Right. So that that that's how he stakes it out. And of course, once you've committed yourself to that view, it's kind of hard to walk it back. Right? Yeah. I mean, especially for a guy like Hoover who had been such a success. You know, I mean, to give the man a do his due, you know, he had come from poverty. You know, he had become a mining engineer and then he'd become a successful mining manager. By the time he was, uh, you know, behind me, he was, you know, maybe 20 years or so out of college. He was probably one of the richest men in the world, right? As, and, you know, in terms of managing uh, gold, successful gold mining operations. And he was such a success that by the time you get into the 19 teens, he's devoting himself full time to public service and philanthropy, right? Not even really you know, managing business anymore. I mean, apart from his personal finances. So he had been right a lot, you know. The world had affirmed Herbert Hoover in his sense of his own capabilities. So for the Depression, and not only that, then in the 1920s, you know, as Secretary of Commerce, he had largely been a success, most notably during the period of the Mississippi flood in 1927. He was put in charge of, you know, flood relief, and everyone said, oh, what a wonderful job he did. Now, we could say that there were drawbacks to his flood relief management, but generally, he looked like a hero, you know, at the time he became president. So that kind of guy, it's very hard for that kind of guy to admit that he did something wrong. Yeah. And he didn't. He didn't, in answer to your question, right? Not only did he not admit that he'd been wrong about the New Deal, he kept saying, well, you know, look, it's obviously a catastrophe. It's obviously a catastrophe, and he expected fully, you know, throughout Roosevelt's first term, that people would come around to his point of view, that the Republicans particularly would come back to him and say, you must run again, you know, that you've been proven right, and that we want you back in 1936. Now, that, that didn't happen, and of course, that never happened again. He was never, the party continued to regard him as a sort of public embarrassment, more or less. Um, but privately, you know, he was very influential. He talked a lot to campus Republicans, you know, to, to young Republicans on college campuses, particularly his own alma mater of Stanford. 
He helped to reshape the party by writing down lists of core principles, he published a book in which he called these the Ark of the Covenant, you know, in the early New Deal, you know, these sort of free market ideals and so forth, Liber proto-libertarianism. And he was very influential on people like Richard Nixon, people like Barry Goldwater, who thought that Hoover really understood some things about how inimical the New Deal was to the American way of life that most people didn't. So he was influential, although he himself didn't ever, of course, get the nomination. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as, you, as, you, as you detail in your book, he, he became a, an evangelist for Hooverism, even at a time when, um, you know, you, you look at any of the sort of, you know, quote-unquote objective metrics of economic performance— uh, in the in the succeeding years after World War II, and like the the country is like, you know, there's a lot of problems in the post-war generation, but like that's arguably the best, like like the, for the average person, the best period of time in American history. Like, um, you know, you're you're having rise, rising wages, unions are strong, growth is really fast, America is on top of the world, you know, unquestionably the most powerful country in the world, and you know, the a global leader um beating the communists at their own game of, you know, uh uh, uh providing, you know, lots of benefits for the working class, and yet this guy just keeps on going, and that movement eventually retakes control of the Republican Party, right? And you you have today basically Republican orthodoxy, maybe cracked a little bit since two thousand eight, but still, you know, you look at Paul Ryan and and the rest of the people who actually run policy in the Trump administration, Mick Mulvaney, and so forth. It's all Hoover stuff. It's cut taxes. It's cut, uh, you know, welfare benefits, get the bums back to work, and so on and so on, right? And and that's like, it seems like a pretty uh, solid demonst demonstration of the power of just like one rich, influential guy just repeating the same thing 100 million times for 40 years, right? Well, I mean, yeah, it's not just Hoover himself. Obviously, the, the, there's something to yeah. that idea that appeals to other rich, influential guys, to use your phrase. I mean... And, 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 you know, he's really kind of in the wilderness through many of those decades just after the war, you know, basically the rest of his life. As you say, you know, growth is good. Inflation is low. You know, the uh, inequality is low. Uh, even Republicans under Eisenhower are in favor of not only maintaining but slightly expanding the New Deal, right? Eisenhower's uh, uh, administration promotes the expansion of Social Security to cover the classes of people that have been left uncovered by the original bill, right? That's a Republican measure, at least in part, right? And so, you know, people like Hoover and Goldwater are on the outs, and even when Goldwater takes over the party in 64, he gets trounced, right, in the 64 election. So it looks like, you know, the, this, this, this ideology, you know, they've been beating this drum for 30 years and it's dead. And of course, you know, then, then it comes back, comes roaring back just a few years later in the 1970s uh, under the, the leadership of Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Um. And th this may be, uh, just to change gears slightly, a good uh, spot to mention, um, you have an essay in a collection, uh, which is called, 
the presidency of of Barack Obama. Uh, let's see, edited by Julian uh, Zelizer. I maybe Zelizer. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow, got it right that time. I usually there you go. Yeah. I usually bungle the pronunciation. Um, uh, but uh, you, you detail in this in the in the essay in this this book, which is which is quite which is a nice little sort of. Uh, initial take on the Obama presidency, basically. Uh, the brief sort of boomlet of publicity for someone named Amity Shales, who has a book called The Forgotten Man uh, about the New Deal. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Amity Shales is a conservative journalist who, uh, you know, is... Um, very keen on, uh, you know, what, what you and I have been calling Hooverism, but she prefers to call Coolidgeism. But in any case, you know, sort of the doctrine that, that business ought to be the main business of the American people, to paraphrase Coolidge, right? And that things like the New Deal are doomed to fail, that government only ever makes uh, the economy more inefficient, and also, of course, uh, thereby diminishes people's liberty. So she's, she's very... Um, uh, opposed to the New Deal, and it just it, it just so happened that she had a, a, a book on the New Deal called The Forgotten Man, as you say, come out uh, just at the time that Congress was uh, beginning to debate, you know, what to do uh, in reaction to the economic downturn of 2008 and 2009, and specifically when they were debating the stimulus bill, what became the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of that year. Um, you know, so I wouldn't say obviously that absent Amity Schles's book, the Republicans would have supported the economic stimulus. That seems to me to be yeah. pretty unlikely. However, you know, her book gave them, um, ammunition. You know, she, she argues in that book that, uh, you know, the New Deal was not only in a sort of this un-American um, encroachment upon uh, economic and political liberty, but also that it was a failure in terms of promoting recovery. And the way she does this, and it's interesting because she actually points this out in her own endnotes that she knows she's doing this. She quotes these uh, old... Um, unemployment figures that are no longer in the uh, reference work, the historical statistics of the United States, in which the people who worked on New Deal projects, the people who built dams and roads and bridges for the Works Progress Administration or the Public Works Administration, you know, the people who did all of the work that the New Deal, you know, uh, helped create for Americans are counted as jobless. So, it's nice. true that if you count 3 million workers as unemployed, the unemployment rate looks a lot higher. <laughs> uh, and you can say, yes, in fact, look, there's a jobless recovery because all these people who are not working or who are working don't count. Now, the logic by which they don't count is, 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 is difficult really to explain and make consistent with the way that we uh, you know, generally count unemployment, which is to say if you have a job, then you are employed. Um, uh, and which is why, of course, the official uh, statistics have dropped those. But she decided that, you know, it helped her argument to use them. And, and, and usually when people do it, they do it, uh, you know, they don't admit that that's what they're doing. But Schles points out that this is what I'm doing. You know, so, so, so that it's kind of a, it's a refreshing piece of honesty, even if it's in the notes rather than in the body of the book. 
But I mean, so there's this book that kind of, you know, gives this view of the New Deal as not working because it counts all these people as unemployed, as, as unemployed who have jobs. And, and so it, it doesn't look at GDP growth. Instead, she tracks oh, the, the boom, of the, the course of the stock market, which is much more wobbly than the growth of the economy and, and, and stuff like that. So it's um, it's a, I, I disagree with the method and with the argument. Let's put it that way. Uh, and I am not alone in but, uh, it, you know, if you just take it on its face and you don't dig into the notes, you, c- you could maybe say this is a good reason to say we shouldn't do anything like the New Deal because the New Deal didn't work. So, yeah, that was, uh, that was, uh, that was quite an interesting moment for history uh, in being dragged into the public sphere, I think, unfortunately, you know, for, for very bad effects. Yeah. And she was on Jon Stewart, right, as you say in the— in the book back when he was still the host of the daily show. Right. And John Stewart was very kind to her. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, what I've just explained to you, I don't think is very complicated, but it does require that you look at the footnotes. Yeah. You know, when people give you just sort of numbers, say the unemployment rate is this, you know, most readers aren't inclined to argue with that. They will, they will trust what you're saying. They won't really dig in where you came up, but this is a lesson in why you shouldn't do that. So uh, you know, so so yeah, she got a she got a pass from John Stewart. She she the book, as I understand it, sold quite well. You know, I think she came out with a graphic novel version of it eventually. You know, it's um it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a successful commercial. It is itself an example of the kind of uh, you know commercial triumph that she uh, is very much in favor of. Yeah, I mean, she's been, she's, I think, largely forgotten now and become kind of a, like, weird crank. But there was a moment Oh, well, there. don't say that. She's got, a, she's got a book on the Great Society coming out right now. <laughs> so just, oh, boy. Uh, you, can, you can expect more of, I suspect it's going to be more of the same. I, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, well, well, you could you could similarly juke the poverty statistics by counting people in poverty, uh, but who... If they're still in poverty, if you just delete their welfare benefits, then uh, the the welfare yeah. benefits don't work. Um, Someone's going to have to keep an eye on that. That's you know the 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 late sixties and the early seventies are a little out of my line, but uh, I hope somebody else will, will keep an eye on that. Um. So this bring this uh this uh brings me to um a sort of maybe more current historical uh argument about about franklin roosevelt from the kind of center left um um, it's funny i was reading a jonathan chait takedown of amity schley's i mispronounced that earlier got to do at least once an episode uh back in (laughs) back in 2009 and uh just savaged her for 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 being just intellectually intellectually dishonest but in the in the succeeding ten years, he has kind of turned uh, to to argue that FDR was not really very ideological, and in fact he was a moderate, just like Jonathan Chait and uh, Jonathan Alter. Apparently, there's a sort of Jonathan conspiracy going on here. <laughs> uh, he wrote an article in the New York Times uh, back in like June, I think, saying that. Oh, actually, you know, 1932 campaign, uh, FDR was this sort of like gormless bimbo who was, who was just like, 
hey, everything's going to be all right. Well, you know, happy times are here again. And he didn't really sort of promise anything specific. Um, and I, you know, I have, uh, I think that's certainly wrong, but I, I, I have had the impression previously that the New Deal was somewhat incoherent. But one thing that I uh, uh, got out of your Winter War book and and also the uh, the the biography of FDR, I forget who it's by, but it's called A Traitor to His Class, was how explicit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, the 1932 campaign was very ideological. And one of the things that FDR hit on continually was the idea of economic interdependence. So, so maybe you could speak a little bit about this, this sort of like revisionist history that FDR was, was really, you know, like a blue dog Democrat, uh, uh, t- type of guy. Yeah, I think, uh, just to, just to, 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 to back up what you said, I think HW Brands is very sound on this point. And I think, uh, I think you're right that Chait's, uh, view of Schley's back in 2008-9 was very good also. You know, I think that, uh, and I don't know if he's changed his position on that or um, if he just thinks of the, the argument that he's now having as being a different argument. Um, but I think that there um, there was a very definite attempt to minimize the radicalism of the new deal almost immediately after Roosevelt's death because the cold war began almost immediately after Roosevelt's death and Roosevelt thought of the new deal as being an anti-fascist machine, right? Uh, that that was the great threat to the United States. I mean, if you want to begin to think about the ideology at stake in 1932, that's another great way of thinking about it, right? Hoover thinks the great threat that could come out of the depression is a communist insurrection, right? That's why he has Douglas MacArthur run off the bonus marchers. He's afraid they're going to stage a communist putsch or assassination attempt. And MacArthur backs him up in that respect, right? Roosevelt looks at the same episode and worries about incipient fascism. The whole point of the new deal is to prevent fascism from gaining a toehold in the United States. So yes, it is to produce economic recovery, but it is to produce economic recovery so that Americans will have faith in their democracy so that you won't have fascism or Nazism in the United States, right? That is Roosevelt's overriding concern. And then of course, as you know, he dies just before the United States wins the war against Nazism. Right. So and then almost immediately afterwards, the United States turns around and suddenly decides that communism is the big threat. So it becomes helpful under a Democratic president, Harry Truman, to say that, well, Roosevelt wasn't really all that far left, because if he was, you know, he might be edging over into socialism, which, you know, that's a whole other discussion we could have. And if he was edging over to socialism, he might be close to communism. And then he's, you know, like the bad guy. So it became very important in the early Cold War to say Roosevelt wasn't a planner because planning is, 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 you know, a bad word in the Cold War. Right. Right. Americans are not planners. They're pragmatic. 
right? <laughs> they favor liberty. They resp- are experimental. They respond to circumstances. You know, there's, they don't work things out from principles. That's what like Mao and Stalin. So that's what gave that interpretation a push. And a lot of Roosevelt's former aides, most notably Francis Perkins, you know, put this forward. It's partly a way of defending themselves. You know, yes, we helped put over the New Deal, but you don't understand the New Deal wasn't some kind of, you know, something that was came out of, uh, you know, the, the, the Socialist International. It was just an experimental series of responses to circumstances, right? And so Roosevelt would never have, have been on the left, they, they would argue, you know, but for, but for those conditions. And then that interpretation got another push in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s when this sort of neoliberal strain took over the Democratic Party, you know, beginning with Jimmy Carter and extending through the other new Democrats like Clinton and Gore, and ultimately with, uh, you know, Barack Obama, as we started out with, you know, these guys were sort of saying, well, you know, the New Deal was, was a good thing. To borrow one of the jokes that was made in the 40s, the, the slogan might as well have been, the New Deal was a great thing and nothing like it should ever happen again. <laughs> because it was a bit too much and a bit too far. Yeah. And so that became yeah. sort of the, the, the kind of the staple line of the Democratic Party for the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and even into the 21st century. Yeah. Um, it worked you know, too and, well. And to give that whole interpretation is due, right? Roosevelt did pick and choose, you know, from various traditions when he was campaigning in 1932 and again later. You know, a lot, some of it came from progressive republicanism, like, you know, from his uh, cousin slash uncle Theodore, right? And some of it came from old Democratic Party traditions, like lower tariffs and higher, you know, income taxes and stuff like that. You know, th- th- so there was, there was a bit of a grab bag, but that's what he campaigned on, you know, in 1932. That's what he told people he was going to bring, and that's what he brought. And of course, also, he responded to circumstances, right? We just talked about how you know, the financial collapse occurred in the weeks just before he took office. So, of course, he addressed the financial collapse first. He didn't say, well, I promised, uh, you know, agricultural relief, so we're going to let the banks fail while I do agricultural relief. That would have been quite foolish. And, you know, he did, you know, chop and change according to, you know, he liked to compare himself to a football quarterback. And there's probably an interesting psychology because, as you know, most of the time he's in a wheelchair. But he liked to say, you know, look, a, a, a good quarterback can tell you what he's going to do on the next play. What he's going to do two plays after that depends how this play goes, right? So, you know, yep. he, he certainly had a kind of, you know, he was a politician. He was aware of the exigencies of, you know, politics. And, and so that, that's all true. Nevertheless, as you, as you say, you know, Brands is right that Roosevelt had a kind of core ideology about how we all depend on each other, this idea of interdependence, and therefore for us all to prosper means we really all need to prosper together. During the campaign of 32, he said, you know, the Republicans are in favor of trickle down. That, that, that phrase was even then in use. Prosperity, their idea is if you make rich people richer, then that wealth will trickle down. I believe more in a kind of an economy that works like rising red. That if, you know, we have the yeast in at the bottom, right, then the prosperity will rise up to the top. So he wanted to sort of begin with the lower, the lower income folks and let the, let the prosperity kind of rise up rather than have it trickle down. And that was, you know, he always worked on that principle. He always lined up, therefore, with producers, you know, laborers, wage earners, and not so much with the, the owners of capital. Yeah, yeah, he uh he, 
he didn't it seems like you know he wasn't um a a socialist i would say i think it's fair to say he wasn't a socialist um and he he wasn't even really much like of a labor unionist but he was a i would say a collective thinker in terms of how the economy operates he he had a sort of instinctive uh view that the the economy is you know what everyone does together this whole massive apparatus that's all connected in a million billion different ways um and if it's like falling to pieces then you know the underlying structure of it all which is the government's got to do something about that and like if one thing doesn't work well by god you should try something else and um it's it's pretty bizarre to see that you know a guy who who ended up you know, I would say that it's it seems fair to say uh, the most left wing president in American history. Maybe Lincoln's got a case there um, uh, being cast as this sort of like Robert Rubin type of uh, trimmer, you know, like it just it just doesn't scan. Well, I think you're right, first of all, on the specific point about, you know, he wasn't particularly an enthusiast of unions. On the other hand, he was in favor of allowing unions to do their thing and to represent workers. You know, as governor of New York, uh, just before the election of 32, you know, he came out, you know, in favor of, of the idea that we shouldn't allow laws to consider a worker's labor as a commodity and thus unions should be protected against prosecutions by under antitrust law. Right. That was, you know, fairly radical position at the time. And, uh, you know, that that found expression later under the New Deal with the, the Wagner Act and the idea that unions ought to be the things that are the uh, representatives of the workers. You know, he his administration was in favor of unions being allowed to be unions. That didn't necessarily mean he was going to side with them all the time. But that they should exist, as you say, already puts them to the left of much of, the, you know, the 1990s style Democrats. Uh, in, in many respects. The other thing that, you know, you, you're, you're right about, of course, is he is our most left-wing president, you know, and, and that helps, I think, explain why we need to say that he's not. It's just like Martin Luther King, right? We always have to say, oh, I have a dream. You know, people will be judged by you know, the content of the character, not the color. We never talk about how he likened, you know, American poverty to the Vietnam War, right? We never talk about how radical he was, right? We want to have the safe Martin Luther King. And we want to have the safe Franklin Roosevelt. In part, with Roosevelt, it's even more imperative than it is with Martin Luther King because Roosevelt was a success, Yeah. right? Not only was he a success in meeting the needs of the Great Depression, Let's remember, he was so successful at that, that he won in 1936 by the greatest landslide in American history, or at least since, you know, James Monroe running essentially unopposed, right? That's how successful he was, right? If he had not helped to engineer an economic turnaround, do you think that would have happened? I don't, and I don't think (laughs) any political scientist does either. Not only that, not only did he help to engineer, you know, recovery from the depression, then he beat the Nazis, right? <laughs> so, so he gets two big wins in his column. For us then, as American, you know, very sober American commenters to say, yes, well, our most leftist president was actually probably our most successful, both in terms of domestic and foreign policy. 
is a very non-Cold War liberal thing to say. And it's certainly a very non-New Democrat thing to say. So he, he gives us a big problem. Yeah. Yeah, You. I mean, I think you see this with Chait, where he's, it's hard to deny, I mean, you can't deny that Roosevelt was a smashing success as president, and therefore he can't be a, a lefty, you know, in any meaningful sense, because that's wrong by definition. But this this raises a, a sort of an alternate history question that that I that I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, you you have another book which I'll which I'll also recommend. I uh, the Money Makers about about FDR and Keynes. Um, right. That that's that's quite a quite a fun read. I particularly like the the scene in which Roosevelt is like diddling up the the price of gold over his his right. uh, morning uh soft boiled eggs I think mm-hmm. by the, there's one where he he does it by 21 cents because 3 times 7 is a lucky number mm-hmm. and that works like pretty well <laughs> right economics it's not that hard folks um but monetary so, policy is some serious stuff <laughs> yeah that's right you got you know you got to have your lucky talismans involved but at, at, at any rate supposing that that you were you know you you you'd imbibe the fdr spirit you've read the eric Rauschway books about about uh about fdr <laughs> and um you know you are president in uh you know january 2009 what do you do about that? And how might that differ from, you know, the Obama approach? Uh, of- oh, okay. I thought you were going to say in, in, in 2021, but uh, uh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 2009. Uh, in other words, what do I think, what lesson do I think, uh, what lessons do I wish the Obama administration had learned from the New Deal sort of thing? Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I think you're, you hit on the, the important thing about Roosevelt is he really had this uh, way of persuading the American people that we were all in things together. Obviously, he didn't persuade 100%, but he, you know, he, was, he was generally quite successful at that. And that rhetorical commitment translated into policy in a variety of ways. It made the Democratic Party very successful for decades so that even if you belonged to a constituency who wasn't being well served by a policy of the moment, and, you know, a classic example of that would be, of course, African-Americans. You might have confidence because of other things the administration had done that you would be better served later, right? That, that justice would come around. The Obama administration never really made that commitment. So, of course, then it never really delivered on that commitment. I think that idea that, you know, we would all get served sooner or later, you know, Then Senator Obama, as I say, helps to whip the Democratic caucus to support Bush's bill in October, even before the election. Right. Um, What should he have done differently? Well, at the time, Pelosi said, you know, if we're going to do this, if we're going to bail out the banks, we should um, make sure that there is going to be relief for borrowers. And in the end, uh, you know, they they had a real difficulty getting relief for borrowers, whereas they didn't have a difficulty getting relief for banks. And uh, I think that that's the kind of, you know, that that would have been the the move in that in that instance, Roosevelt would have probably been on Pelosi's side. That if you're going to get some for one, you got to get some for all. Um, 
in general, you know, Roosevelt was also very keen to show, of course, that his administration had delivered on its promises. You know, wherever you went in the United States, you were going to see a WPA project. And it yeah. was going to say that it was a WPA project. You can still walk around the United States and see WPA projects. You know, there's some WPA stamps and sidewalks in the town where I live, right? And that's not at all uncommon, right? The Obama administration was very bashful about take about owning, uh, you know, the kinds of uh, investment that the stimulus bill did make. And then, of course, it was much smaller in terms of, uh, you know, uh, that the kind of impact. Uh, in terms of actually employing Americans than, than, than things like the WPA were. So um, I wish Obama had, you know, gone big rhetorically, had made sure he got something in exchange for what he was giving. And if it was inevitable that he wasn't going to get it, and that's certainly a credible argument to make, you know, with the Republicans of that era, then I wish he had at least come out and said, we are not getting the deal we wanted for the American people. Yeah. That might've been especially critical in terms of the stimulus, right? He said, you know, this is the best we can do. We have tried. I am signing it. I have hopes that it will succeed, but we could have done better. And we owe the American, I'm not a speechwriter, but you know, something to that effect. Yeah. So that people understood, you know, that, that, that they deserved better. Instead, they were told by the administration, oh, this is good. This is going to do it. And it didn't quite do it, you know. Yeah, and so the, that, 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 that kind of lost, lost, you know, kind of it broke a little bit the social contract with the voters. You know? Yeah, the, the, the social contract, I think, is a is a, an inter- that's a good way of looking at it, I think, because, you know, I think as you say, as you say in the book or maybe that essay, I forget which one. You know, one of the administration's top economists, Christy Romer, um, sure. she says that the that the hole is, you know, the depression hole is one point eight trillion dollars big. So we need a one point eight trillion dollars stimulus to fill it back up again. And Larry Summers looks at that and he says, nope, that won't pass Congress. And he knocks it down to, you know, eight hundred billion. 800 billion or something like that. Um, and you know, the, the administration never tried to communicate to the American people that like, here's, here's our problem and we're going to try to stick this in. And if you want the, the, you know, the, the bandaid to be as big as the bullet wound over the, over the economy's, (laughs) you know, like, like, uh, lungs, then, you know, call your call your congressman, tell them to vote for this damn thing. Instead, they preemptively compromised. Um, and and you could see this sort of like insider, a kind of, I would say, almost like elitist, anti-democratic attitude coming out in other areas. You know, when when the the Federal Reserve, um, they extended the ability to print dollars to uh, a number of uh, foreign central banks, um, among them the Bank of England, the uh, the Bank of Switzerland, European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, um, 
because all of those countries were heavily exposed to dollar-denominated debts, which would have destroyed their banking systems. Um, and so they they did basically swap lines, you know, which which allowed, uh, um, you know, you you could print some euros or some pounds or some Swiss francs and trade them for dollars and have dollars that you could stabilize your banking system with. There was like ten trillion dollars worth of these swaps that happened, and that's what saved Europe from being like basically the whole European banking system from being destroyed by dollar-denominated debts. And nobody in the, the administration said a single word about any of this stuff because they thought, probably accurately, that it would be unjustifiable because the rest of the population wasn't being helped in the same way. Nobody was saying, right. um, you know, oh, if you're underwater in your mortgage, you lost your job or anything like that. Um, you're, you know... We're, we're coming to the rescue in the same way because they weren't doing that. And this, this uh, you know, it, the contrast between Obama, the Obama administration, you know, maybe his subordinates who didn't do what he said a lot of the time uh, versus FDR with his fireside chats where he would explain in detail what he was doing and how it benefited everyone strikes me as a, you know, a profound uh, demonstration of the value of democracy in both, uh, you know, producing, you know, broad legitimacy in, among the population and also getting a policy that doesn't suck, you know, that isn't just for the 1%. You know, it's like, okay, the whole, the whole people are getting a piece of all the things that we're doing, right? Right. And, and, and as you say in the fireside chats, Roosevelt wasn't shy of saying, you know, we are not there but we are on the way. You know, he didn't feel compelled to sell everything he did as the best thing in the world, you know, but that it was moving in the right direction was something that he, that he would say. Uh, you know, with the, you know, there uh, eventually the comparisons peter out, right? I mean, who knows, you know, Obama's supermajority in the Senate was very wobbly, very short-lived. Roosevelt had a much bigger majority. Of course, Roosevelt's majority is somewhat illusory because a lot of those people are conservative Southern Democrats and don't really favor the New Deal. So you know, that, that's a tough one to pick apart. You know, the, the media environment in the, in the Obama administration is extremely hostile. Right? We know this. We know that, that Fox uh, particularly is sort of a new modern innovation. Roosevelt didn't face a particularly friendly media either but you know he had a he had a certain way of managing it and of course newspapers are very different from television you know it, it's hard sometimes to make it a one for one sure but again as we've been saying you know I, I i do think there was no reason for barack obama you know not to say i promised the american people hope and change and I am going to try to deliver on it. And when I fall short, I'll say that. Yeah. You know, and, and instead, in, instead, there was a kind of, you know, an inability to say, well, this is not what we want. And I don't know what that, where that comes from. As you say, maybe it's a kind of elite confidence that maybe we shouldn't do more. Maybe it's a, it's a core conviction that, you know, New Deal style things really don't work. And so we don't want to do any more of them than we 
have to. You know, maybe maybe it's uh, you know just a kind of a shift in the character of elite culture where you just never admit a mistake anymore. You know, I really I really don't know. But uh, it, it was frustrating to me at the time, and it remains to me frustrating in retrospect. Um. Well, that uh, I've just got one more question. Um, sure. Do you do you see any kind of um, maybe recrystallization of the sort of fundamental elements of the the New Deal coalition? Um, you know, maybe sort of updated for a for you know the 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 new the the new twenties as it's as it's coming <laughs> to pass. Um, sort of taking shape you know you you have your bernie sanders your alexandria ocasio cortezes out there um bernie just posted a gigantic fundraising hall i think almost 35 million dollars um there seems to be a an appetite for uh you know a, like a i mean and as as sanders himself says uh bringing back a lot of that spirit of Rooseveltian um, politics. So, you know, do you do you see that uh, coming back in in America in the in in the next uh, few years? Well, I would say on the one hand, you know, just the very fact that the phrase "New Deal" has come back into the political mainstream is remarkable, right? We we didn't hear that for a long time, and now it's back in various colors and, and flavors, and people seem to be more comfortable than not with describing a democratic capital D agenda going forward as being some kind of new deal. So that, that already is a sea change. Um, you know, uh, as we've already said several times, but I'll, I'll make, you know, one more historical observation. The new deal in the thirties was not socialist, right? There is some confusion on this score, apparently. Uh, but Norman Thomas, who was the head of the Socialist Party of the United States, was asked, you know, <laughs> hasn't Franklin Roosevelt just carried out your program? And he said, oh, yes, on a stretcher. You know, he <laughs> believed that the New Deal had killed any possibility of real socialism. You know, not only that, Norman Thomas then opposed Roosevelt's policy of, you know, aiding Britain against the Nazis. So there's a very clear demarcation of where the liberals were and where the socialists were. And the New Deal and the anti-Nazi program was liberal and not socialist in the 1930s. But, you know, again, there's historians are very irritating to talk to because of distinctions like this. I, I understand that. Um, you know, the big difference, of course, is right now we are not in a deep recession or a recession period. We are maybe still sort of suffering a lot of the hangover of the 2008, you know, great unpleasantness or whatever we call it. But uh, it's it's not like you know 1932 where there's you know 20 something uh, unemployment. Right? So True. you don't have that spur, you know. As you know, the the spur to action now that we collectively face is climate catastrophe. Hence the Green New Deal. The idea that we must mount some kind of collective effort to meet that challenge seems to grow every more pressing by the day. I think of everyone who talks about it, you know, it's, it's uh, as you say, uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, who is most sensible, both of the, the potential in the idea of a new New Deal and sort of a collective effort for the common good, 
And also the risks because of the ways in which the old New Deal, you know, taking cognizance of the then political landscape, left a lot of groups out or actively oppressed certain groups. Very important. And yes. She, she's, yes, she's, she's the only one I've ever heard talk publicly about, you know, the sort of the, the, the things that we would want to gain from the New Deal and also the things that maybe we would want to leave behind. And so I, I have a great deal of respect for how she talks about that historical analogy. And I think that, you know, going forward, that's got to be the hope is to really be clear about what we want, you know, from the, the, the 30s style, as you say, idea of economic interdependence, of, you know, prosperity rising from the bottom up, like uh, yeast through bread, as Roosevelt would say, and making sure that it works for, you know, a society like the one we have now. Yeah. That's a good point. That uh, to to just to draw that out explicitly, you know, the the New Deal coalition uh, relied on you know a, a critical mass of southern de- southern Democrats from the then ironclad Jim Crow states, which were ex- just totally dedicated to segregation, and that and that that really screwed up a lot of the new deal uh, benefits when it came to, you know, tri- um, making it to the, uh, you know, African American population. Dis- despite the fact that I, I think it's true to say that black people in America did fairly well out of the new deal relative to their previous position um, with, with, you know, rising wages and then eventually culminating you know, with the realignment of the Democratic Party towards civil rights, uh, the the Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, and so on, you know, more formal equality. It was just that, you know, at that point, then the, the economic equality piece got sort of pulled out of the the equation. But, um, yeah, so any, any, you know, sort of 2020 version of that, especially given that the country is much more diverse than it was in the 1930s, is, you know, of necessity— uh, going going to rely much more on non-white voters than it did uh, back in those days. Um, yeah, I mean, you don't want to. You don't want to. Th- this is worth a whole other hour's discussion, right? The, the relationship, yeah. the New Deal to black voters. But it's absolutely true that, as you say, segregationists were, of course, part of the New Deal coalition, especially in Congress. But also that, you know, outside the South, especially, uh, you know, where where black Americans really could vote, uh, they, they came to vote democratic, you know, because of the new deal. Yeah. Um, because of what it, what it, what it represented and what, and what, and what, as you say, the material benefits that it delivered. Yeah. Yeah. Before maybe worth uh, mentioning, you know, previous, previous to the, you know, 1930s, uh, African Americans had been loyal Republicans because of, um, uh, Abraham Lincoln and emancipation. Um, and so that that was a process of of drawing those people out, and maybe you know that gives some sense of how Roosevelt had to navigate this incredibly tricky coalition of you know Southern segregationists in the South, and also you know a, a, a somewhat uh, black urban proletariat in the North, um, and you know like that. That he was, above all, a very excellent politician at, at sort of like threading those needles. Um, but at any rate, you know, we certainly don't want to recapitulate, you know, the, the sort of like carve outs for Social Security and minimum wage stuff, where it's like largely black prof- professions, you know, aren't included in that stuff. You know, that's completely out of the question 
you know, even just on narrow political grounds, much less moral ones. Right. And, you know, the, the, the challenge, as you say, is therefore a political one. Historically, people who have opposed universal benefits in the United States going back 50 years, 70 years, have been able to say, well, you realize this is going to benefit X group that you don't like. That's how you do it, right? You say, this is, this is good. Oh, you like welfare? Okay, but it's going to go to black people. Or you like, you know, public services? Okay, but they're going to go to, you know, uh, undocumented immigrants or whatever, right? And, and that's how you split up a New Deal coalition. And that, that's proven effective time and time again. So what a politician going forward is going to have to do is try to say, this is for everyone, right? And you don't have to worry that it's going to benefit a group you don't like because it will be good for you. And that's the, that's the rhetorical magic that somebody has to pull off. Yeah. Well, Eric, Professor Eric Rushway, distinguished professor, sorry. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's all right. <laughs> um, uh, thank, thanks for coming on the, the podcast. Um, the, the main book we've been talking about is Winter War, but I also definitely recommend The Money Makers. That's a, that's a very fun read. And also, you know, his, his entry in the, uh, the presidency of Barack Obama. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of good stuff in there. So, um, yeah, thanks, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, Ryan. I had a great time, and uh, I appreciate your invitation. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care.